And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered rightly, This do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment, and wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went to him, and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three, thinkest thou, was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go, and do thou likewise. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we come now to the preaching of the word of God. We have heard the word, which is truth. So we ask that the minister would be able to preach this word of truth truly, faithfully, um, with the intention of God behind it. So we ask for the Spirit to fill his words, to fill him now, that he may make known the mind of God to the people of God, that he would not gloss over what is necessary for their edification and for the glory of God. And we pray that the people of God would be prepared now to hear the word of God, plow their hearts, Father, plow their hearts that they may receive the word. We pray for the unbeliever here that they may turn to the Lord when they understand what the Lord means by the way of eternal life. And we pray for those of us who have backslidden that we would turn back to the Lord. Lord, only the word working by the spirit, even through this, this weak vessel can accomplish such things. So we pray, Father, for the power of the word of God to be demonstrated now by the spirit, that the faith of these people should not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Amen. Well, we now come to what is known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. One of the most memorable of all of Christ's parables is likely even the unbeliever who's never read the Bible knows about this parable. And sometimes, as we've often considered it, what is often most harmful to us is familiarity. Really, familiarity does breed contempt. We're tempted to say we know the parable of the Good Samaritan, especially if been Christians for any length of time, and we gloss over it, we skim over it, we read over it quickly, we are maybe convicted on a point or two, but we don't dive deep into it. Sometimes we are often guilty of this kind of thing. 
And we often neglect to even remember the occasion that brings the parable of the Good Samaritan to us. That the question comes from a lawyer about eternal life. And that is the reason why Christ brings this parable to us. There is fundamentally here a question concerning eternal life and how one might inherit eternal life. And if you don't understand the connection here between the parable and the question that is given, you will misunderstand not just the richness of the parable, but also you will take away the wrong lesson from the parable. And you might be tempted to think that the way to eternal life is simply being a good Samaritan, which Christ in no way intends for us to take away. But the question then that I want to deal with today is this question of eternal life posed by the lawyer. And in perhaps no other society before our day has such a question been so sorely neglected. A question of how may I inherit eternal life? Or as the lawyer puts it, what must I do to inherit eternal life? For our society, as we well know, is a society that is mostly and almost exclusively focused on the here and now. You know, we have presidents, they're only thinking four to eight years, hardly thinking about the future. You yourself may only be thinking just for a few days to come, maybe to the next paycheck, if that. And the problem is, we don't even think farther than that, which we ought to, which is eternity itself. How often do we, even as God's people, think on eternity and eternal life? And our society, certainly around us, hardly has a care for the question. And it truly does try to put away or shut away even any thought on death or eternal matters. Uh, Things that used to be called things like this, ultimate questions, ultimate questions. They're not pondered about. And it's not because we are smarter than uh, the men and women at the time of Christ. It is actually because we're duller. And we don't think about the things that really matter. What will happen when we die? How many even think about the question anymore? And, And then ask, on what basis do the things that I believe about eternal life, what basis do I believe these things? On what authority do I know these things? No, we are not smarter than those who came before us. We are in many ways duller. For to this lawyer, this was a question that has to be dealt with. Whether or not, and there's some dispute here and I'll mention it, whether he asked the question in earnest or not, he found the question relevant. He found the question necessary and needful to be answered. And the interesting thing is, Christ's answer is actually quite disheartening in this text, especially to the man. And it should be, and I'll unfold how it becomes something heartening, but on the face of it, it ought to be incredibly and extraordinarily disheartening to you. Yet many gloss over the answer given by Jesus and make this a text purely about moralism. Yes, it has moral duties. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. But if you and I think we can inherit eternal life by being a good Samaritan, we have not read our Bibles very carefully. And so we need to understand how penetrating Christ's response to the man's question on how to inherit eternal life is. And so this morning we will deal with the question 
And next time we will deal with the parable. So in view of that, our theme is the only way to eternal life. The only way to eternal life. And we'll divide this narrative under the three heads on your bulletin. First is a testing of Christ. Second is the requirement of the law. And third is an attempt to escape. First, uh, a testing of Christ. Verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, boys and girls, you hear the word lawyer, and you might be tempted to think this is a lawyer like in our civil courts we have today. But this man was not a civil lawyer. He is a lawyer of Jewish canon law, of religious law. He was an expert on the religious law of Israel. And he poses, as we mentioned, to Jesus a question concerning eternal life. Uh, The King James translated, he was tempting Christ, but uh, what that signifies is this was a test. He was putting Christ to the test. Now, it may be that the question was genuine, and he was truly testing Christ to understand the answer. Maybe he was testing Christ. Is this man, uh, is this rabbi, is this teacher the genuine article? But it's also very likely that he was trying to entrap Christ to get him to say something that would get him into trouble. It's really hard to ascertain because the text doesn't give you any details. However, given what we know about the religious authorities at the time, it is very likely that the man was here to entrap Jesus. Though in any case, he does address Jesus respectfully. He says, master, that means teacher. And he asks his question, master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Eternal life, then, is the subject. How to have it, what I must do, is the question. Now, first I think we must understand what the man means by eternal life. Because being a a religious expert at the time, he has a particular understanding of that phrase. And the man knew, as you ought to know and I ought to know, uh, of the life to come, that all men will live forever. His question is not whether all men will live forever. That's not the question, how may I live forever? The question is not on quantity. The question is quality. The question is really one of quality. Undoubtedly, the lawyer knew Daniel 12.2, which is where this question comes from, which says, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting or eternal life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So you see, eternal life and eternal contempt is put before us in the Holy Scripture. Now on that point, and I don't mean to spend much time here, some will claim that the Old Testament has no, um, has no conception of heaven and hell. But in Daniel 12, verse 2, you see it does. Plain to see, including the resurrection. And this lawyer knew it. This lawyer knew that some would be raised from the dead to everlasting life, which is blessedness, Uh, the blessedness of heaven forever, and some would be raised from the dead in everlasting contempt to be treated as one contemptuous by God, everlasting damnation, hellfire, and misery, the only two options. And the man knew it. And those are the only two options before any man or woman. The question, whether or not the lawyer was genuine in asking Christ this, is vital to ask for ourselves. Will I awake to everlasting life or to everlasting contempt? Because those are the only two options after death. 
I hope, friends, that you have an interest in everlasting life as the lawyer did. The quality of your eternal uh, life depends on the answer, doesn't it? What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a vital question. It absolutely is that every man, woman, and child must ask, what is the What is the answer to the question and how do I know the answer? You would be a fool and I would be too if we didn't think on the answer. Almost everybody believes that there is an afterlife after all. And certainly everybody lives their life or almost everybody but the most psychopathic person like there is a life to come. So what is the answer? Do we know? And I want you to know as I'm on that point The man did not ask a purely theoretical, uh, theological question, did he? It's not purely theoretical and uh, purely theological. It wasn't a question disassociated from his own person. He doesn't say, what must man do to inherit eternal life? He says, what must I do? What must I do? He has a personal stake in the question, doesn't he? As you and I must as well. You are to ask the question, not what must man do, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You are, and and this goes broader than this question, you are to have an interest in every point, a personal interest in every point of doctrine in the scripture. Particularly when it comes to your own walk with the Almighty. Not here, let me just put some questions before you. Not merely, how must men worship God? How must I worship God? Not simply, how do men keep the sixth commandment? How do I keep the sixth commandment? Not simply, who did Christ die for? But especially, did Christ die for me? Religion is meant to be personal, as this lawyer points out and shows us. Not just this lawyer. You think of another man. The Apostle Paul showed you this way in his own writings. He does not just say that men are sinners. He says, wretched man that I am. He does not only say Christ died for the ungodly. He also said that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. You know, one of the worst things that happens in Reformed churches today, especially those with a certain kind of preaching, is to disassociate the hearers from being confronted by their own relationship and their own walk with the Lord. Children, you always have to take the word and make it personal. This is not just a word about sinners out there. It's also about a sinner here. And that's the way you treat the word of God. But God here in this text would have every man, woman, and child to know their standing with the Almighty. Well, you notice that the Lord did not answer the lawyer directly. He tests a man in return. He asked, what is written in the law? How readest thou? Now, first thing you notice is where Jesus takes the man. He says, out of the scripture, tell me what the scripture says. He doesn't say, tell me what your rabbis say. He doesn't tell me what their opinions are, what the traditions are. He says, tell me out of the only rule for faith and life, tell me what the only authority and ultimate authority for man is. Tell me out of the Bible, the word of God. Once again, all controversies in religion are settled by this book and this book only. Isaiah 8.20 says to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, 
It is because there is no light in them. So coming back to a question I posed earlier, an ultimate question such as eternal life, brethren, who are you going to trust to give you the answer? Who are you going to trust? Will you be content to go to your deathbed based on the opinions of mere men, of today's talking heads, of the philosophers long dead, the so-called experts you find on places like Reddit? Is that what you're going to entrust your eternity to? On what authority will you confidently and surely enter eternity? Will it even be on the word of your minister and elders? No, absolutely not. It cannot be that either. It must be, as Jesus shows us, the word of God. You listen to your minister and your elder only insofar, or an elders, only insofar as they use the word of God to point you to Christ. Because this is God's own speech. This is on God's own word to you from out of heaven so that you may know how to enter heaven and have a, a, a walk, a righteous walk with the God of heaven and please him. Boys and girls, children, you know what God says of the scripture and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to what? Make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And you know that is 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17. Memorize it well, children, and know it well, and never forget it, that even as a child you may know the way of salvation that has eluded the world's worldly wise, which is through faith in Christ Jesus. But not only salvation, which is the question, of course, today, but everything in your life, doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that you may be made perfect by this book, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. But in any case, Jesus Christ consistently, and we've seen this now for uh, 10 chapters in Luke, takes you to the scripture always, never the opinion of men, never on traditions. It's like they don't even exist to the Lord. He doesn't even reference them. So as Protestants, we reject any religious authority not rooted in the scripture. That is the doctrine of sola scriptura. Not a Protestant doctrine. It is the doctrine of the word of God. To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. The power and authority of the Christian ministry is the word of God. All who speak not according to this word have no light in them, be they popes, bishops, pastors, random talking head. No matter how authoritative they sound, no matter how wise they appear, no matter even for our day and age how angelic they seem to us, even as Satan appears authoritative, wise, and angelic, if they speak not according to this word, there is no light in them. So there's the word of God that Jesus goes to. Now, one last thing to note about the man's question in view of 2 Timothy 3, where salvation was said to be of faith in Christ. Yet the lawyer asks this question, what must I do? The word do in the Greek text is a word that means to perform. What must I perform? Now, this was the question, undoubtedly, the reason that the question uh, is, well, let me turn it around the other way. The reason the Lord answers according to the law, and you'll see that shortly, is because the man almost asks according to the law. 
What must I do? What must I perform? What must I uh, accomplish in order to have eternal life? Otherwise, you might expect the Lord to have said something like this. Believe on the Son sent by the Father, and yours is eternal life. Repent and believe. But he doesn't answer that way. Because the lawyer's question deals with how one might merit salvation. What is it that one must do in order to be saved if I am to work for it? Which helps us understand why Jesus answers in the way he does. As though he said, if you want to merit, if you want to do, take me to the law to see what it says. Take us to the law as a covenant of works. This do and thou shalt live. He does it so that ultimately we may be taken to the covenant of grace to come and flee to him after seeing our inability to do what the law says as a covenant of works. And that's what we'll consider in our second heading, the requirement of the law. So to Christ's inquiry as to what the law says, the lawyer answers in verse 27, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. Well, he does well. He clearly teaches out of the word of God what a man must do, what I must do to have eternal life. The lawyer puts together two texts, Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18, which teach then the totality of the law and summarizes it that the prescribed way to eternal life is loving God and loving neighbor. And Jesus commends the man's answer. He answers rightly. Verse 28, he said unto him, Thou hast answered right. Then, what does he say? This do, and thou shalt live. This do, and thou shalt live. You know, in Matthew 22, uh, this was Jesus' own answer when a lawyer at that time asked Christ, which was the greatest commandment. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, given the similarities of these texts, something Matthew 22 is the parallel uh, uh, text here. It's the same discourse, rather. Uh, the setup is similar. There's a lawyer there as well. I'm not so sure of that, given that uh, Christ does the answering in Matthew 22, but in our text it is the lawyer who gives the answer. And in our text, the question specifically is about eternal life and not the greatest commandment. But in any case, that aside, Jesus said, if you want to do and have eternal life, here it is. Love God and love neighbor. And that is the way. Love. Go and do that and you will live. This is a covenant of works. Now, if you never have thought about that very much, you might say, okay, fair enough. I will go and I will love God and I will go and I will love my neighbor. And then I will have eternal life. I will do well. But it's not that simple now, is it, friends? In fact, to truly grasp what the Lord means here would cause you to lose heart and be utterly dismayed. It would cause you to say, I am shut out of heaven. There is no way to eternal life for me. And you see here and you sense that the realization dawns on the lawyer too. Because, and maybe he knew the answer, but maybe it hadn't dawned on him what it meant. Because when Jesus says, this do and thou shalt live, you sense almost a kind of discomfort comes over the man. He begins to squirm. He senses the difficulty in the answer and asks, 
Well, who is my neighbor then? For if the answer is as expansive as the man dreads or dreaded, heaven's doors are shut. I'll deal with his squirming in the next heading, but for now, do not delude yourself uh, that what Christ said is the way to eternal life by works is easy or frankly doable for any sinful man or woman. Now Christ said this do and live, and he was not lying. He was not disingenuous about it, because these are actually the terms of God's law as it functions as a covenant of works. You want to merit eternal life? Fine, here it is. Do and live. Leviticus 18.5 Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live or buy, uh, live in or buy them. I am the Lord. That this is the proper interpretation is supplied by Paul. Romans 10.5 For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live in them, or by them, rather. This is the righteousness that will bring you eternal life. And it is a perfect doing in order to live. An unwavering, uncompromising doing. Not just to do occasionally when it feels convenient, but to do perfectly and entirely all the time. The demands are very high, and it goes even higher than men might think at first blush. Insofar as the law pertains to God, what did Christ say was commended? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, all. Notice this is an inward, particularly love to God, expressed outwardly and inwardly too by keeping his commandments. He says every faculty of the soul, heart, soul, mind, is to love the Lord. And with every fiber of the soul's being, the will, the affection, and the intellect are to be focused on loving the Lord. You are to love the Lord with all the strength of your soul. As Christ said in the 22nd chapter of Matthew, this is the summation of the law as it pertains to God. Commandments 1 through 4 are summarized this way. Thou shalt, love, uh, thou shalt have no other gods before me. You're not to have anything that comes before him. Thou shalt not, second commandment then, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. You are to worship God and delight to do it because this is what God wants as he is. Third, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. You are to delight in his name and always have the highest and loftiest view of God when you speak or think of him. And fourth, as we confessed in our opening prayer, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy because you are to love the Lord and you are to delight in spending time with him. That's a summation. That's just a summation of what loving God is. Not just outward conformity, but inward with all the strength of your soul. Your mind to be kept on these commandments and love and your heart's affections as well. Our obligation to God to enter eternal life. And this is a just obligation, isn't it? You might think that, oh, this just sounds too much. But this is just because he is worthy of being loved like this. Absolutely so. God is worthy. God is owed this. God is in his rights to demand this. In fact, the Christian should mourn that they don't love God in this way. Not always. Even being born again. But knowing how lovely he is, we ought to delight in loving God like that. 
You would be a poor liar today if you say, even as a born-again Christian, that you have loved God, that you have loved God as he must be loved in this way. Yet the Lord Jesus says, this do and live. And if that were not damning enough, the second part adds fuel to the fire of damnation. Love thy neighbor as thyself. We are to love our fellow man and fellow woman even as ourselves. Meaning charity to care for them as though we are caring for ourselves. To look on them and care for them the way we would care for ourselves. And that's the illustration that comes in the parable of the Good Samaritan. A man that would care for a man that others would consider his own enemy as though he was caring for himself. He gives the man out of his own substance as if the man were himself. He tends to the man's health as if he were looking after his own health. Have you done this, friends, to all who come across your path? Whether they are friend or foe, And have you done this out of the heart and not out of bare legal obligation? Or even when you have bothered enough, you know, you've been bothered enough to love your neighbor. Have you just done it out of that legal obligation, bare obligation, and not really wanting the best for them, willing to give the shirt off your back as if they were you? Well, the thing is, the Lord knows the heart and the Lord judges the heart. And Matthew 22 says that what Jesus, or what is here before us, love your neighbor as yourself, summarizes commandments 5 through 10. From honor thy father and mother to the prohibition against coveting what is your neighbor's, these show us how to love our neighbor as ourself. Again, the Lord says, this do and live. Again, while We lose heart at these things when we really think about them. You need to recognize, I do too, that the standard of God is good. Absolutely so. It is bad selfishly, isn't it, uh, for us as sinners insofar as this standard condemns us. But if we were to objectively look at the law and to look at its summary as love, we would have to be astonished by it and how wondrous it is and how glorious it is that this law is good, that this is good law. This is a law summarized by that one word that people say they want, which is love. But yet people never give it. Paul asked in Romans 7, 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Answer, what? God forbid. And that the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Romans 7.12. Now the fault is our races. Adam's sin caused the human race to become sinners, so we are born despising God, despising uh, His law, incapable of keeping it. And that fault is not God's. That fault is our races. Adam knew full well what was in view when he disobeyed God. And then his fall made us a race of rebels and sinners, tainted and polluted with sin. And all, you know, we get this often when we go out evangelizing, right? Uh, not uh, this last time, I didn't hear it directly, maybe one of the others did, but certainly I've heard people say, but uh, when I preach on the judgment, but God is love. You think that justifies you, that condemns you, because you are not love, and you neither love God nor neighbor. To say God is love is to actually put the noose around your neck, friend. 
Don't think that because God is love, you're off the hook. In fact, he says, well, I'm love. What about you? And a loving being must deal with iniquity and sin and put it away and condemn it. Anything less would mean I am not love. But men hate their neighbors and pretend they're full of love. They've been dishonorable. They've been liars. They've been uh, thieves. They've uh, coveted. They've lusted and so on. They've not done deeds of charity. And yet they would dare to mock the righteous judgment of God. And, And let's get personal again. Instead of saying they, let's say we. Let's say me. You and me. The standard of true love would condemn all of us. And again, as I have alluded to, and you, many of you here well know, this is the standard of the covenant of works, which was made with Adam in the garden. And Adam, as we remember, could have done all this. He was given power to love neighbor and love God. But instead, he follows Satan, and he fails to love his neighbor when he would rather uh, take on the curse, killing his wife and us, his seed, in the process. And um, lest you try to weasel out of what the Lord Jesus says here about loving God and loving neighbor, the Lord did not say, try to love God and your neighbor. He doesn't give you some lower bar as we are prone to want, uh, as though to say, well, do what you can and God will accept it. Do what you can to love God and neighbor and I'll accept the best that you can. Now, the reason I mention that is because many have taught this kind of thing. Um, This is what actually Martin Luther was taught in the Via Moderna school uh, under the papacy before his eyes were opened to the gospel itself. And the phrase which summed up that kind of thinking was in Latin, uh, facere quad in se est, that is doing what is within you, doing what is within you. In other words, do your best, do your best and God will accept your best. Now, what's the problem with that view? Because this was in many ways, even in the Christian church, has sort of been a heresy resurrected. Just do your best and God will accept your best. Well, Luther felt the problem and Luther understood the problem. Couldn't I be doing better? I know I could do better. I say to you, I could be preaching better now. I could be loving you better. I know that I could have spent my time better this week honoring God better. You see, the problem is all of us know that we could be doing better. We could be doing better than what we are presently doing. I can say that. But where does that leave us if that is the doctrine of the word? It actually is very unkind and cruel. It would condemn us all if that were God's measure anyway. In any case, Jesus did not say do your best. He said love your God with every fiber of your being and love your neighbor as yourself. This is a summation of the law. And James 2.11 further torpedoes your hopes when it says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. So even if you imagine that you have kept, well, I haven't murdered, which if you understood the sixth commandment, you would see that you have murdered in the heart. But anyway, even if you uh, went that way, if you offend on one point, you're guilty of breaking them all. The, The law is a bundle. Which is why he says, do not commit adultery, said also do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. You think on this, the law is a bundle of love. right? It does violence to love to just uh, assault a portion of love. And so all of love is violated. 
breach one and you have ruptured love as a whole, not just in part. And so in all of this, we could just say, children, our goose is cooked, isn't it? And all that awaits us is fire and brimstone. Never forget Galatians 3, 10 through 11. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. That's the standard. But here's the blessing. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident. It is evident. For the just shall live by faith. This is what Luther himself recognized. And the lawyer, being a good lawyer, though he recognized it, he didn't have the remedy to it. He attempts to escape from God's noose by weakening the demands of the law, but Jesus would have none of that. And we'll consider that in our next heading, an attempt to escape. Verse 29, But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now, here is man's folly, isn't it? He is willing or wanting to justify himself. Right? That's what man wants to do. He sees the righteous requirement of the law and he knows I can't meet it. But he's willing, he's wanting to justify himself. He's still not ready to cast himself on the mercies of God. And he says, no, I will justify myself. And uh, Maybe here's a, a chance, here's a hope. Who is my neighbor? And so he tries to get Jesus to narrowly define uh, neighbor so as to justify himself because the man's conscience must have been pricked in some way because he knows that he hasn't loved all men in this way. And he's hoping that it is so narrow that maybe there's a slim chance that he can squeak by. But he's doing what Romans 10.3 says, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. We don't want to submit ourselves to the righteous judgment of God, the righteous standard of God, rather. We invent our own. You know, sad to say, we don't even hold to our own man-made standards, which God will use to mock us if we do not submit to his own. Now, Jesus would have none of this man's flimsy attempt to evade the word, and that's why he delivers the parable of the Good Samaritan, to get the man to admit for himself that the concept of neighbor is very expansive. But in view of this, then, is Jesus showing us that no one can have eternal life? Is this discourse a cruel joke on fallen men and women? No, not at all. But what Jesus is doing is showing us we cannot have eternal life by keeping the law. That we had best not even try and certainly never play the game of redefining the demands of the law to try to keep it that way uh, for justification. So what does Christ's answer have to do with eternal life? Well, Galatians 3.24 teaches you why he speaks this way. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. In many ways, um, to the Christian, though the law at some points, especially before our conversion, seems like our enemy, to the elect of God, the law is a schoolmaster, a teacher. And when we think of maybe the wedding analogy is almost like the best man to lead us to Christ, that we would be married to him. 
to show that there is no striving here, that we can keep the law so perfectly that God will accept us in any possible way other than to flee to Christ. Jesus uses the law to send us to himself as he shows us the righteous demands of the law, that we would not seek to be justified by weaseling out of the law's requirement, but rather to just say and to admit to God, I cannot do it, I haven't done it, and I need the mercy of God. So that we would say to the law, would you send me to Jesus? Which is why even in the Old Testament law, there is the sacrificial provision for those who sin. Showing that the law itself would send us to Christ. That I might be justified by, and here's that blessed word, faith. Which is the gospel. Expressed by another covenant, not one of works, but of grace. A free gift. A gift from God to sinful men who do not love God as they ought. Now you might ask, well then, has God removed the righteous requirement of the law for a man to be saved? And the answer is no. No. But what the covenant of grace does is it gives you a substitute. One who is a proxy. One who will do it for your sake. And then give you his righteousness that you may have it as your own. That when God looks on you, he looks on the righteousness that Jesus Christ has earned. The one man who has loved God with every fiber of his being and loved his neighbor as himself. And God says, I will accept that man's righteousness as your own if you have faith in him. And Jesus, of course, is the only one who can say he has done it that he has loved God and loved neighbor, and he is the only one actually who can say, I can justify myself before God. So you need the justification, the righteousness that comes from him. That is our hope, Romans 5.19 shows. For as by one man's disobedience, speaking of Adam, many were made sinners, so by, and here are the critical words, the obedience of one, meaning Jesus, shall many be made righteous. Purely the obedience of Christ is where our hope is. Because Christ was obedient to these two tables of God's law. You with faith in him are counted uh, counted before God as righteous. You are counted as one who has kept the law with all your soul as Jesus did. And so Romans 10.4 says... Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. And so with a sigh of relief, we praise God for that truth. And we praise God for it today. Here is the way of eternal life. Not by loving God and neighbor perfectly. You cannot do it. It would be foolish to base your eternity on such a thing as you have heard. Your own conscience even now stands accusing you stands accusing you that you have not loved God and loved neighbor as you ought. And when you die, friend, the inquiry when you come before God will be something like this. Have you loved me with all of your soul? And have you loved your neighbor as yourself? That will be the inquiry. That will be the inquiry. And what will you say to God? Will you ask in return to the Lord of hosts, Will you say, who is my neighbor? No, absolutely not. You will be in terror before the Almighty because he will show you. Your life will flash before your eyes and you will see you're a sinner. And you haven't loved at all the points in which you could have loved. 
all the points in which you neglected God and never had a care to worship Him, and you never loved your neighbor as yourself, you will find the righteous judgment of God is righteous indeed. It's a terrifying question, isn't it? Have you loved with all your soul? If yes, the answer is yes. Eternity is open to you. Otherwise, an eternity in hell looms large. But the believer, but the believer is so taken up by this that when God asks the question, did this one love God and love neighbor with all their being, you will have a God-appointed lawyer. You will have an advocate. You will have Jesus Christ who will answer on your behalf. You will not have to say a word, but he will interpose and say, but Lord, but God, but Father, I did and I have given my righteousness to this one. Because as the eternal covenant states, one who has faith in me, my righteousness is imputed to them. And then God will shine upon you. His face will shine upon you as he shines it on Christ. And he will say, enter into the joy of the Lord and you will have eternal life. And that is the gospel. Those are the terms. And God will keep himself to it. But let us also never neglect Never neglect, beloved, to praise Christ for doing what is impossible for us. Because he did these things, you can be saved, and me too. Glorify him that he loved God purely and entirely, that he consecrated himself to God in a way that none of us here, myself included, will ever know. Glorify him for loving his neighbor as himself. Even you who believe know that truth, don't you? That when we were perishing, he went far beyond the good Samaritan. For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for who? The ungodly. The good Samaritan couldn't give his life for the one who was waylaid, but Christ gave his life for you. And you can say, as we were implored to say, Not just that Christ died for the ungodly. You take up the words of the Apostle Paul who said, Christ died for me. I am ungodly. Christ died for me, the ungodly. I want to end just a couple of moments with the notion of eternal life. What is truly the quality of eternal life? And because we're going to leave this theme, I thought it best to just deal with briefly. You know, sometimes when we think about eternal life, we think about Perhaps if we've been influenced, especially by the culture, you know, streets paved with gold and and things like that, and it's just a carnal place to be. But what is it that makes eternal life blessed? Is it just sort of the absence of pain? No. John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, or life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. That is eternal life. To know God knowing the triune God. And so then, if that is eternal life, does it not make sense that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord thy God with all of your being? Because eternal life is summed up in this way, knowing God, knowing God. And in that then, you rejoice, believer, because eternal life has begun in this life. Because you know God through Jesus Christ. Well, time being up. Next time we will consider the parable of the Good Samaritan, which will challenge our love for neighbor, will it not? 
as we consider the law uh, as a, a rule for our obedience and not a rule of salvation for those of us in the covenant of grace. Now, we are not, nothing I have said here in any way takes away our duty to love our neighbor as ourself. However, you cannot use it to be justified. However, God does ask that by his, or say by his help, we are to love our neighbor even as we will see in the parable. But until then, let us arise for prayer if able. Rise for prayer, if able. O gracious God of heaven, how we thank thee, O Lord, that we are not left under the covenant of works if we are in Christ. We are thankful for the law, which is good and holy and just. Father, help us to never despise that law. Help us to glory in it. And yet help us to never see it as the rule of our, of our justification. How thankful we are that God has sent his son into the world to save sinners. That Christ died for the ungodly to bring us to God. That Christ lived a perfect obedient life. That we may be called the Lord our righteousness. He may be called the Lord our righteousness. If our faith is in him. How thankful we are that salvation is of grace and not of works. Oh Lord, how glorious is this good news. Help it remain good news to us. Help us to discover it and think on it often. And help us to as well try to never weasel out of the law's righteous requirements, but instead flee to Christ in every way. Bless those here who have not saving faith to see that they cannot be justified by their own goodness, for they have none. And help those of us who have lamented and fallen into misery because we have believed that the way of right standing to God is in keeping the commandments pure and entire. Console them this day, Father. Give them repentance, and may they know the blessedness of Christ, their righteousness. O Lord, may you bless this word to us now, we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond.